Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Possibly, I mean, I would have to talk to the Tower of Power people about this, but possibly there could be a different version of the song called nasal vaccination. It doesn't quite scan with soul vaccination, but uh, we are going to be talking about nasal vaccination today. I think it's a big, big step. Uh, We have a guest to talk about it, whom I have been hoping very much to get on this show at some point. Uh, I'm excited about that. A little bit later, we'll also talk to Aaron Collins, better known as the Mask mask Nerd. Uh, He is uh, an engineer who specializes in aerosols, uh, and he has acquired quite a reputation for actually testing N95s, K95s, uh, uh, KN95s, and and, uh, other kinds of masks that are kind of commercially available out there, uh, and, and is able to match them up also pretty well with the science of aerosolized transmission. So uh, two COVID guests, and then, of course, it is the Olympics. The Olympics, which are not untinctured by COVID-19. There's some pretty interesting stuff. In fact, the more of the science that you understand, the more you will understand some of the COVID things that are happening right now in the Olympics. I seem to have lost the ability to speak grammatically. But, um, for example, the Australian uh, curling team, uh, there's a two-person uh, man-woman curling team who almost got disqualified for testing positive. And it actually seems as though what's happening or what happened was they were running the cycle thresholds so high that they were kind of turning out the turning up the remnants, uh, the, the sort of, you know, genetic fragments uh, of, of an infection that one of them had, had in December. Um, but, you know, they don't train the sports people about this stuff. So anyway, uh, this is I got to stop blabbing and babbling and get to the point here because Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, uh, the Waldemar von Zedwitz professor of immunobiology at Yale University uh, and an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, has made some time in her busy schedule to talk about a study uh, that she led. Um, it is a study that, you know, you probably saw as you were browsing your medical journals. It's the unadjuvanted intranasal spike vaccine booster elicits robust protective mucosal immunity against sarbacoviruses. You probably saw that one when you were browsing, uh, but she is here to talk about it. Hi, welcome to our show. Hello. Thank you for having me, Colin. So um, we should talk about nasal vaccines um, and, and, and why they would have a particular advantage. What I tell my friends and family, and you can be ready to correct me if I'm wrong, I always say think, think of your whole body as Paris. 
Um, and then think of your upper airwaves, uh, your upper airwaves as kind of the Charles de Gaulle airport and its waiting lounges and stuff like that. Um, and then the rest of your body is the real good part of Paris. So you get these um, these vaccines injected into your into your muscle and they protect the good part of your body, the Paris part. They keep the virus from going down and shopping and having dinner at fancy restaurants in the Paris part of your body. They keep them stuck uh, at the Charles de Gaulle airport, ideally in a really uncomfortable waiting lounge. But the problem is the vaccines that go intramuscular, they don't really do anything about the Charles de Gaulle airport and the waiting lounge, right? The virus can still be up there doing what little it can do. That's correct. Um, so current conventional vaccines giving into the muscle will generate very good circulating immune response. So these are the guards that are running around the, the streets of Paris, I guess. <laughs> but they're not situated in the right place at the right time, which is the nasal cavity. Um, and what we are trying to do is to uh, deliver a nasal vaccine. It's a spray giving into the nose so that we can induce local immune responses and putting these guards right outside the gate uh, so that one, once they're coming in, we can detect them and get rid of them before they even have a chance to get into through the security of, of the airport. And um, explain why you, I mean, it's sort of obvious from, from what you just said, but, but my understanding is this is at least initially anticipated as a booster only. Explain why that would be. Yeah, we focused on the booster only uh, mechanism because most of us by now have had some sort of immune encounter with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, whether you've been vaccinated, boosted, or have had prior infections. And so what we're trying to do is to leverage these existing immune responses and immune cells and uh, have a strong booster immune responses in the nose. And the advantage of taking um, these, uh, you know, prime and boost strategy is that uh, we don't need to deliver adjuvant, which is um, elements that are usually contained in the vaccine that stimulates the innate immune response to induce um, inflammatory reactions that is not, you know, ideal uh, when it happens in your nose. And so we're just delivering the simple spike protein without any adjuvants uh, into the nose and getting really remarkable uh, immune responses, you know, right at the site of virus encounter. Now, let me ask you whether this part is relevant or not. For me, okay, so I'm uh, I'm double vaccinated plus boosted, um, and and so I you know I don't at this point have terrible fears about getting a severe case of COVID. Uh, although I know that could still conceivably happen, but it's, it seems remote. Um, but one of the fears that I do have, and actually tomorrow. I am going to be back on the same campus where you work, uh, teaching my first class in class there that Yale has just opened up uh, to, to in-class teaching. And, and it'll be the first time I've been in a room with a large group of people, uh, and I'm nervous about it. But the main reason I'm nervous about it is because I have some immunosuppressed people in my life. And my concern isn't that I'm going to get you know, a fully expressed severe symptom case of COVID-19. My fear is I'm going to have just enough of an infection in my upper airways to be dangerous to other people around me. And I'm wondering if that any of that is sort of part of the thinking behind the, the study that you led. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so the nasal vaccine 
one of the you know main advantage is that it prevents infection altogether, which means that you know if you're vaccinated in the nose, it's very um, unlikely that you will acquire the infection and also to transmit the infection to other people. And so ultimately, we need a, a new generation of vaccines that can prevent transmission in order to ultimately you know contain this pandemic and current vaccines are not very good at uh, you know preventing transmission they are very good at preventing severe disease but because they are not establishing mucosal immunity in the nose uh, they're just not very good at you know preventing uh, onward transmission from people who are vaccinated so that's precisely the reason that we developed this new strategy is to prevent infection and transmission so we can, you know, uh, feel safe about going out and and uh, doing, you know, somewhat normal things uh, like teaching and learning. Right. And it, it sort of, you know, gets into this is a little bit more of a, a rabbit hole. But one of the things I've done some reading about over the course uh, of the pandemic is the whole question of what's an infection. And, and, you know, if you have if the virus is only present in your upper airways and if you are not symptomatic and maybe even it takes a pretty high cycle threshold on the PCR to to, to pick up your virus, do you have an infection? And I've found actually that scientists and doctors will have slightly different answers about that. But I, And I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. Uh, it sounds like from what you just said, you still think there's, I mean, the, if the virus is somehow present in your upper airways, no matter what else is going on, you're infected. Yeah. So um, infection happens when the virus is able to enter the host cells and replicate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the, the best kind of vaccine would be to provide sterilizing immunity, which means that the virus doesn't even have a chance to mm -hmm. enter one single host cell, and in which case you're not infected. But, you know, uh, we're not trying to get a sterilizing vaccine. We're trying to get a transmission preventing vaccine, which means that even if you are infected to very small extent, maybe there are a few cells that are, you know, infected and replicating the virus, but you quickly contain that so that your chances of transmitting that virus to, to another person becomes very, very low. And of course, your chances of getting disease from that is also very low. So we're trying to, you know, uh, hit that sweet spot where we can prevent, you know, uh, enough of that replication from happening in the first place to be able to block the transmission and infection. So let me ask you the question that it's hard for an investigator to answer probably. I mean, it's one thing to do a study like this one and get some very exciting results. It's another thing to imagine it in action in the field. Uh, do you have, you know, sort of even heuristically uh, um, a sense of how long it might take before something like that were available? So we are making quite a rapid progress on that front. Um, you know, this technology has now been licensed to a company called Xanadu. And uh, that company will partner with, you know, uh, other larger uh, vaccine companies to be able to do uh, safety and um, efficacy trials and potentially uh, do, uh, you know, a, a rapid clinical trial to see if this uh, vaccine can be uh, implemented in humans. And so there's a lot of interest out there um, since, since I tweeted about this study. I've been getting a lot of emails and phone calls from people who are interested in supporting this. That is that is good news indeed. Now, there's another component to this, and I I, I just know from the reading that maybe it isn't um, top of mind for you and your team, but I think it's important too. We actually did an entire episode of our show a couple of months ago on needles, and we specifically looked at kind of needle fear. 
And, and there have been some clinical research into this that uh, children, a majority of children, uh, exhibit needle fear. Um, prevalence estimates for needle fear range from 20 to 50 percent in adolescents, 20 to 30 percent in young adults. And, and okay, although this thing is a booster right now, in the study, it's a booster. The fact that there's some percentage of the public that's not getting vaccinated predominantly because they're afraid of needles, that's a real thing. Uh, and I'm wondering how you feel about down the road, the nasal vaccine maybe being an answer to that too. Yes, uh, you're right. I have also been hearing from people who have phobia to needles, and they're very excited because I think they'll be much less hesitant to get this kind of nasal spray vaccine than a needle-based vaccine. And down the road, we're hoping that we can develop prime and booster technology that involves the nose instead of um, the needle. And we can also think about uh, skin patch and other you know, needle-less vaccine delivery strategies to combat this problem. Um, and it is actually a large fraction of people, as you say, 20 to 30% of the people have some form of phobia against needles. Right. And we just, I mean, it, it is, I think one of the lessons of this pandemic is that that people are human. They have human issues and weaknesses and fears. I, I just read a study uh, about uh, adverse childhood experiences affecting people's willingness to get vaccinated. It's not all about needles, but it, it that's in there somewhere. You know, the more bad experiences you've had with authority figures or whatever, I mean, it, it's harder to get people to do this. So the easier we make it for people, the better. I would assume, this will probably be the last question, I would assume in a way you probably kind of hope that this particular this particular technological development doesn't get used for COVID-19 because COVID-19 will die down and be more or less over by the time it's ready to go to market. But I'm also guessing that you think that's not the case. Yes, I've made uh, multiple predictions that failed <laughs> about the waves of COVID. So I, I stopped making any future predictions. But yeah, I, I, I wish you were right about, you know, the Omicron being the last wave, but I somehow don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Uh, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki is the Waldemar von Zedritz Professor of Immunobiology at Yale University and an investigator uh, at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, was a leader of a team studying nasal COVID-19 boosters. Thanks for taking time from what is no doubt a busy schedule. Thank you so much, Colin. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we are going to talk in a very technical way about masks. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Baby, take off your gloves. Yes, you can leave your mask on. We wish you would. Uh, we are going to talk about masks. We've been living in a masked world for almost two years now. Uh, and the types of masks that people gravitate towards have also been changing a lot during those two years. Uh, and the knowledge that we have or think we have about the masks uh, has also altered as we've gone along. But here's somebody who really does know something about them, as opposed to people like me who spout off like we know something about them. Uh, Aaron Collins uh, is a mechanical engineer with a background in aerosol science who tests and evaluates masks on his YouTube channel and publishes all of his data uh, in a Google Doc. He goes by the Masked Nerd, uh, and we are very excited to have him here today. Aaron Collins, welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good afternoon. So I mentioned to uh, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki in the previous segment, tomorrow, I've, I've been like Mr. Super Safe during the pandemic, and I, you know, I rarely go anywhere. I haven't been to a restaurant either indoors or outdoors in two years, stuff like that. Tomorrow, I'm stepping into a seminar room where I'm going to be teaching, uh, and the students will all be masked, and I'll, I'll be masked. But, uh, you know, it is one of these things where you are betting a lot uh, on the mask in that situation. And so maybe you could just sort of begin by by just telling us kind of how to think uh, about a mask, about how much safety it would ideally confer uh, in the present environment. Sure. So when we talk about masks, there's kind of three big parameters that we talk about. So we talk about Filtration, so that's the filtration media that's in the mask, whether it's a cloth mask or surgical mask or a respirator, which we often are call like a KF94, KN95, or N95. Um, and then there's the, fil- the fit. And so when we talk about mask, how well does it seal to your face? So how much can we ensure the air is going through that mask, not around that mask? And then comfort is kind of the last part, which is measurement of like how hard it is to breathe in and how comfortable it is on your face. And so when we talk about respirators, even uh, let's say the KF94 and KN95, those are those ear loop varieties that come from either China, which is the KN95 standard, or South Korea, which is the KF94. Those feature uh, a high-performing electrostatic filter media inside of it, uh, which can filter, you know, for when we talk about these COVID respiratory aerosols, it filters really high rates into the 90, you know, 99, I would even argue moderate breathing rates like 99% through the filter media. Um, and so they're, the, they're a mask that seals to the face, so they give you that fit. Uh, and the protection level that we're talking about, I mean, the design target of those masks in terms of in terms of like total protection, the design target is no worse than eight to 11 percent uh, for those style. And then if you go to like a headband version, which would be an N95, 
their design target. Now, there's no guarantee you need a good fit, but their design target for those masks is is 99% or 1% leakage. Um, and so, you know, they can convey really high levels of protection relative to a cloth mask, which may be 30 to 50%. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of level we're talking about. Right. So, you know, um, a couple of days ago, I went for a sort of a follow-up sort of semi-physical with my primary care physician. Uh, and I happened to be walking in there uh, I, in a 3M N95, uh, 8-2-10 if you want the number. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it would mean something to you and to nobody else. Uh, but um, And he's wearing what doctors wear in the offices. He's wearing a surgical mask. And we just, we, we fell into a little conversation about that. And he said, you know, whenever I put one of those things on, pointing to my mask, he says it makes this thing pointing to the mask he's wearing, just, you know, a blue front surgical mask, uh, with ear loops because this makes me it feels like I've got a piece of Kleenex taped to the front of my face uh, compared to what you've got on right now and it is kind of interesting that I've been in a lot of medical environments hospitals and rehab uh, units and stuff like that and the staff there there nobody I I mean it's shifted a little bit in some places because of omicron but up to that point n- nobody was wearing anything better than a surgical mask yeah, and it's really, I mean, I, I and I have been to the doctor as well uh, in the recent time, and I was kind of really surprised that at some hospitals and stuff that, that many of the staff are still wearing surgical masks. But this has kind of been the nature of the evolution of how we understand transmission. I would argue uh, some aerosol scientists uh, back in, you know, June of 2020 were advocating for aerosol spread then and discussing it then. It took a long time to convince the medical world about the impact of airborne transmission. And so I think we're starting, once we kind of got acknowledged that this is an airborne mechanism, we are starting to see the shift to better and better masks. And, and you know, the surgical masks are better than cloth masks, but relative to a respirator are still, you know, sometimes as much as two to three X worse than a respirator. Um, because of how that works. Yeah, I think there was this huge game-changing moment that wasn't really acknowledged partly because it kind of sank in in a gradual way. And it's the one you're alluding to when we went from kind of the face-to-face droplet, you know, six to 10 feet model to the notion of a virus that is aerosolized, that that is airborne, that could still be sitting in the air, you know, a little while after everybody has vacated the space. And it took CDC a long time to really acknowledge that, WHO a long time uh, to acknowledge that, that we should be attacking this with better masks uh, and, and better ventilation, better air filtration, that those, you know, after the vaccine, those might be the most, would be the most relevant weapons in, in the battle. But it seemed like there was this huge space between the technical understanding of that and the behavioral adoption of that. And I think that's because the 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 things that we are talking about that when you tackle an aerosol spread outside of masks, and this is why I'm a big advocate for big, res, you know, good, good, good quality respirators is that when you look outside of respirators to tackle all the things we're, we're mentioning, you know, ventilation and stuff like that, when you have aerosol transmission is that those are big projects. I mean, it's not easy to go update an old building to improve its ventilation. I mean, you can do things like install portable HEP units and all that stuff. Um, and so there are some scalable things to do in the short term, uh, but those do take time and they take a lot of resources. And so that's why things like masks are such an important part of the tool as a, they're very easy to, sh- you know, short term, very easy thing to, to don a mask uh, and provide significant protection to yourself and others when we talk about aerosol transmission mode, as we wait for all of the sort of, you know, um, larger, like larger scale production products to, to introduce ventilation come into play. So you kind of have to do both. And so masks are good, like short term. We don't want to do it forever because, you know, as everyone's aware, they're not, I mean, no one loves wearing a mask, but if you're going to have to wear one, you might as well wear, wear one that really works at least, right? 
Right. So um, you test them. But we should say that, as you sort of laid out at the beginning of our conversation, um, the, the areas of concern, uh, the, the areas of, of measurable importance, fit is really, really up there. And your face is shaped differently from my face. Uh, I even have a beard, which I try to keep really closely trimmed because I don't want it interfering with a mask. Um, so probably uh, we can talk about the, the quality of construction and the materials used in a mask. But then there's some idiosyncratic aspects to this. You, you could test the mask, but you can't test it, test it very easily on my face or somebody else's face. And, and that's kind of the big challenge with respirators. Is And so like you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, which is that uh, you know, these masks all feature high filtration media. So when you look at any mask style, KF94, KN95, or N95, they have really good filtration media in it. So when you go to a respirator, what's nice about going to a respirator versus other styles mask is that all you have to focus on is like what you said, fit, making sure the air goes through the mask and not around it. And so not one mask will fit everyone's faces. So it does take a little bit of work, but that's the same that we saw with cloth masks in the bidding, right? So when the cloth mask that you might've liked is not the same cloth mask that I would have liked because we have different face sizes. And so we still, we still have that tr- struggle, but the availability of the different styles of respirators to me indicates that there are good opportunities for people to get good protection from, you know, either like the 8210, that cup style. I'm not a big fan of cup masks. There's masks that are trifold style, like the 3M Aurora series or KF94 is often feature that. Uh, and then you have, you know, duckbill masks, which look totally goofy. I'll never argue that they are a cool mask, but they do feature usually ultra breathable fabrics. And some of them are breathable enough that I'm 90% sure you could like run a marathon. in them. So I think that when you have this ecosystem of masks that can fit different faces and different needs that you can get protection, kind of whatever your use case is. Yeah. So I'm sitting here just for fun. I brought a bunch of them in. <laughs> so um, so I've got my 3M uh, 8210, uh, which I, I really like. And I, I, I think when we put them on, too, because we can't you know, fly out to visit you and have you see how well they're fitting our faces. I mean, there's something, there's a little bit of guesswork and probably a sense of feeling too. I mean, um, so let me begin by asking you that question. Which, as we judge the individual fit on the idiosyncrasies of our, our faces, what should we be looking for since we don't have access to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, we, yeah, not everyone has access to a, a fit tester or a portable counting machine, you know, particle counting machine. So uh, what, what you can do is when you're wearing the mask, you'll notice that like any mask, it gets warm on the inside. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I like to do is you can actually create a leak in your mask and you can make a pretty big leak. Just pull it away from your face a little bit. And when you breathe in, you'll feel that cool jet of air. And mm-hmm. what I recommend is just letting that mask get closer and closer, let that leak shrink and shrink and shrink until you can barely detect it. And you'll start to feel what that, what that feels like when you have a leak. And then just after you close it, see if you feel that anywhere else in your face, because that would indicate that that you might have a leak somewhere else. And then you can simply just use your hands if you're thinking like, I think it leaks right here on my cheek. Just use your hand to push it and seal it against your face. And if you feel it change, then that's an indication that, yeah, that portion of the mask was leaking. And so you can kind of do some really basic stuff like that to indicate whether your mask is fitting you kind of good enough. You won't get to the kind of levels that... Uh, you know, healthcare workers and stuff do because they get a professional fit test, but you can still get really much better protection than you could with a cloth or surgical mask. So um, uh, you said something about you, you don't like the cup masks. Now, I've used two different cup masks. I use the Demotech uh, and the 3M. The 3M, I, I actually do like a lot in my sense doing kind of a version of what you just described is that it's fitting really well and it's big enough also maybe to go over the beard area that I'm a little bit worried about. So is there a reason you don't like cup masks? 
So, I mean, everyone likes different masks. I personally don't like cup masks because I find that they put a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure on my face because yeah. they kind of have a smaller perimeter than other style of masks. And so from my experience uh, and my face, that a long duration cup wear mask really starts to hurt on my nose bridge and in my, on my cheekbones just because there's a lot of pressure there. But everyone's face is different. So that's not to say that just because I don't like it, you might not like it. Uh, I think that's the whole idea is just try try a few. I mean, I would love to see the the handout from the from the Biden administration for all these N95s, which is great. Trust me, I love that. Mm-hmm. I wish that they, they would have given a variety pack, though. Here's three different ones, <laughs> you know, yeah. so that if you only take one and that doesn't fit, it doesn't it doesn't help you as much. But I mean, uh, you know, I won't complain too much. I'm just glad they're giving them out. Right. So uh, another thing that comes up, and I think it might have come up in your conversation with our senior producer, Lily Tyson, is the fogging of glasses. Uh, and some people, for some people, I think that would probably be a danger sign. Doesn't that mean air is escaping from the mask somehow if it's able to fog my glasses? Yeah. And that actually is a common question I get. And I tested it. And the answer is, if you have fogging glasses, does your mask fit your face? And it's a maybe. And so there's kind of two different ways that your glasses fog. So the, the one in which your mask is fitting you, but your glasses fog is that when you breathe out, the mask kind of traps the air close to the mask and then it slowly comes out. And that air that you're breathing out is humid and warm. And so because of that warmth, it's buoyant and it rises up and floats into your glasses and starts to condense on them. And so what I find is that if your glasses fog as at the end of your breath, that's usually a sign of just that buoyant air issue. Mm-hmm. But if you did have a leak right near your nose, usually is where you feel it. And you start to breathe out and instantly you feel air blowing into your eyes and your glasses fog, that is a sign of a face seal. And so to me, it's if your glasses fog at the beginning of the breath, like right away when you start to breathe out, that can be a sign of face fit. If they're fogging towards the end of your breath and kind of just slowly fogging up, that's just the typical effect of having warm buoyant or flow against your cooler glasses and condense the vapor. Yeah. So I actually do also, I like, I'm trying to decide what to wear, wear tomorrow because there's the another another issue which we haven't mentioned. We've talked about comfort, but also if you're going to be in a situation where you're talking, you would like to be audible <laughs> and, and not so muffled that people are asking you to repeat everything that you say. And so I, I'm going to be sort of testing uh, the 3M cup maybe against the Demitech Fold. I like the Demi- Demitech Fold a, a lot too. I think it's a uh, uh, it seems like a good mask for me. Now, I'm holding in my hand right now, you can't see it, uh, a Kimberly-Clark duckbill duck mask. To me, these things feel so lightweight and so flimsy, and the way that they come underneath my chin feels kind of inconclusive to me. I mean, the, the straps, the, the, the back of the head straps aren't as powerful. They're not really that kind of tight elastic that kind of really just latches the mask onto your face. I have less of a confidence level based on nothing more than my my own, you know, guesses and, and sense of taste. And I think that's an okay thing to assume because, you know, if you feel like the mask isn't fitting you well, that's, you know, that's a good sign, right? Especially if you have some experience with other masks. Um, and I think that's the key thing is that different head sizes. So whether that, you know, if you have a larger head, the Kimberly clap, excuse me, Kimberly Clark straps may be a little bit tighter for someone else, or if you have a slightly smaller head, it can be a little looser for you. Um, and especially if you have a beard, um, especially the ones that go under your chin, mm-hmm. like, uh, like that style can be a little bit more problematic because, you know, there's not a lot of tension trying to squish the beard right to your skin. Um, but I think that's why it's good to try them all. Now, the thickness thing, you know, when we talk about mass thickness, I see, I get, I sometimes people say that like, oh, this mask is too thin. It must not be good. You know, the, the filter material that's inside these masks is actually only about the thickness of the sheet of paper. So everything else is sort of structural around it. 
3M for the cut mask is they're pretty thick because they need that good structure. But the thinner mask, they actually can often breathe easier. And so one of the things that's nice about the Kimberly-Clark, if you notice, is that it's really, really easy to breathe in. And that actually helps with a little bit with face leakage as well. Okay. And the last mask that I've got, I don't think you've tested. I went through your spreadsheet today and I couldn't find it unless it's under a different name. Uh, it's actually, it's made by a company called Magid, M-A-G-I-D. Uh, it says precision safety on the box. It's got the NIOSH stamp on it. Um, it's a V-fold uh, type of mask. It's really weird though. It kind of has almost this kind of grommet that runs all around it. Uh, and then there's kind of a wire for your nose below the grommet. And then the back straps are weird, too, because they actually have an adjustable slide on each one of them so that you could slide it down and kind of tighten it, pulling the loop uh, back through through the adjustable slide. Um, and so <laughs> they're very complicated as, as masks go. And they, they feel pretty secure, but I just I don't even know what I'm dealing with. And I don't know why I'm asking you because I'm pretty sure you haven't tested it. I, I haven't, but I will have to because now I'm very curious. I mean, I, things like adjustable head straps, I think, are something that's been missing yeah. from the market, um, which I, I think is when we talk about better masks, right? We What we have now is is most of the technology is, you know, masks kind of change very slowly, but most of that stuff came out in 2010 in terms of like the Aurora series and some of our latest masks were already 10 years old. So I think there's a lot of technology that can go with like adjustable head straps or using elastomeric material, like I think you're describing with this Magrid mask. Um, I'll have to check it out, but uh, I'll, if I'll, it's NIOSH, yeah, okay. I'll tweet you a um, picture of the box. I'll tweet it at you. Please, please do. But if it's NIOSH approved, um, I think that you know that's gone through the uh, vetting process and it has a regulatory agency behind it. So in terms of protection, as long as it fits your face, I'm good with that. Um, so I, I know from your Twitter account that you're also annoyed, uh, rightly so, about masks that are either counterfeit or you know have major problems with them. Some of them are still being sold, to, much to your annoyance, by major online realtor, uh, retailers. Um, how does the average person know to avoid how, how to avoid a, a counterfeit or you know substantially defective product? And that's been the sort of like. Well, I would say a million dollars, but with inflation, let's say $1.3 million question uh, about how, how do you know? And, you, and the problem is as a consumer, you can't just look at the mask and tell if it's good. You need really specialty equipment. And so I use some stuff that I kind of cobbled together in my home lab, uh, but real you know, quality testers are like $130,000, right? So well outside the, the spectrum of almost anyone that's practical about this. Um, so that's why we have to rely on suppliers. And so, so my recommendation is, yes, there are poor and underperforming masks. I recently had you know, some work discovering some of them uh, available in a large online retailer. So my recommendation is, you know, it's all about supplier and vetting a supplier. So, so places like Project N95, which is a nonprofit PPE uh, distribu distribution company, uh, or group, I should say, not really a company. Uh, you can check out them. They vet all their suppliers. And then, of course, like you have US-based options, which are really great. Demtech, you gave me an example. They make actually a KN95, which is very strange. And another one of my annoyances <laughs> that we don't have a US general population mass standard. But otherwise, the other option is if you like to purchase on Amazon, you can go to a lot of those places like, like BNX, again, another US customer. You go to their website, they'll actually direct you right to their Amazon page. So then at least you know you're getting the legit stuff. So stick to big box retailers as well if you're looking for stuff. Uh, available right now. Home Depot carries the Aurora series, the 3M9205 Plus, a mask I really like. All right. Um, I, I would ask you what mask you're wearing these days, but I was told by my producer that there are ones that I couldn't probably get anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, there are. I, the masks I really like are coming out of Hong Kong right now. They're kind of leading the charge in really good general public masks. Uh, so I wear this mask called the Seibu Ultra. I do it because it's ultra breathable. I'm a big proponent for getting to ultra breathable masks. 
because once you've gone to an ultra breathable mask, you can never go back. And it's as close to not wearing a mask as you can get. And so that's why uh, that's what I look for. And I'm a big proponent for that. And what's it called again? It's called the Savewoo Ultra, S-A-V-E-W-O. Got to order it straight out of Hong Kong. <laughs> well, I mean, since since I'm holding in my hand right now a mask that you don't have, you, the mask nerd, do not have this weird gromity mask that I have. Uh, I'm going to take that as a challenge to see if I can get one. Um, well, this has been fascinating. And, and people should uh, check out your work, check out the videos you've made, the spreadsheet that has all the masks that you've tested. Aaron Collins is a mechanical engineer with a background in aerosol science who tests and evaluates masks on his YouTube channel and publishes all the data in a Google Doc. He goes by Mask Nerd. Why should you care about this? Because essentially you are occasionally betting your life on one of these products. So maybe know whether they work or not. Uh, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about the Olympics. And we only ever talk about the Olympics with one person. And he lives far, far away from us. And he's upside down. You know, if you didn't know what that was, it actually sounds, at least with the timpani at the beginning, it actually sounds a little bit scary. Uh, but of course, it's the Olympics uh, theme. Before we get into this, I have to thank our technical producer, Kat Pastor, who's always ready to do these demanding shows. Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and the producer of this episode. And now we are about to talk to, as we do when there are Olympics, which there are quite frequently. Seems like they happen all the time now. Um, ben Waterworth is an Australian journalist and radio host and host of many podcasts, including Off the Podium, a podcast about the Olympics. It is our favorite Olympics podcast. It's also the only Olympics podcast we're actually familiar with, although we know that theoretically there are hundreds of others. Uh, however, one of the great things about Off the Podium is they have almost no interest in what American athletes do. Uh, and they are much more to the point of almost being exclusively interested uh, in the activities of athletes and teams from the Southern Hemisphere. Although for that to be strictly true, Canada and Argentina would have to change places. Uh, and then they'd be covered. And that might be in the works. You know, it's the kind of thing that you could just sort of see happening somewhere down the line. So, uh, Ben Waterworth, uh, welcome back to our show. Good afternoon, Colin, or should I say good morning from here? Yes, it's a, it's a pleasure. And I wouldn't say that we've... Uh, we, we love all the Americans um, <laughs> competing in the Olympics. We've had a couple on the show, at least at least two or three that are competing right now in Beijing. So, yes, uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, though. Yes, very exciting uh, to be with you. Uh, and uh, I, I think we should probably play a, a cut representing what is probably, for you, the most exciting uh, moment uh, of the Olympics so far, although it's kind of one island over. Uh, Kat, we're going to use C1 here, I think. So this is uh, from just, I, and I, I've lost track of the days in China and Australia and New Zealand and Connecticut, so I have no idea when this happened. Oh, switch back nine wow. on the first hit, straight into the front seven. So much for backing it down. Uh, she's my favorite woman snowboarder. <laughs> Backside nine. 
We are talking uh, like a 98 yeah. 99 for a score. That switchback nine on the first hit was insane. I think I'm lucky if I did two of those that look like that in my career. Holy macaroni. Zoe Sadowski Sanat already on a 95 with a large lead and comes up with this third run. Forget the backing off. It is all about progression in women's snowboarding, and that's exactly how you do it. I especially like the holy macaroni. Um, so, you know, here in Connecticut, Ben, as you probably know, we really go out all out on Waitangi Day, which is the National Day of New Zealand. And that's when they won their first winter gold medal. Uh, I'll have you flesh out the picture a little bit. It, it's amazing. And, and you're right. They couldn't have scripted this any better to have this on Waitangi Day. And 70 years they've been in the Winter Olympics for them to finally break through and win a gold medal. And, I mean, the I don't know if it's an amazing thing or a bad thing is that Australia got a bronze in this. We got our first medal of the Olympics with Tess Cody. So I feel the attention that this might have brought, because we're generally pretty friendly with New Zealand, uh, it, it really didn't achieve much. We were just kind of like, oh, yeah, great. They won a gold medal. Fantastic. But look at us win bronze. So um, I think it's a, a massive deal for, for New Zealand to have this, which it's actually surprising to think that this has taken them so long because they've got some pretty good ski fields and some pretty big snow culture there compared to Australia. So they actually won a Winter Olympic medal before Australia did. They were the first to win a Southern Hemisphere uh, Winter Olympic medal back in Albertville in 92. So they they did have that history. But, yeah, it's taken them another 30 years to to finally break through for gold with, with more to come. They've got uh, Zoe. That's not even Zoe's good event. She's got another climb to come. and They've got a couple of other chances. So, yeah, they, they still might add to that tally. I have one theory about the, the problem for New Zealand. It's possible. This is basically um, is based on my major so source of apprehension about uh, about New Zealand, uh, that every time they, they set out to go do some winter sports on one of their mountains, the storm gets so bad that they have to go back down and go through the mines of Moria. Uh, and, and so maybe they just never, yes. maybe, maybe they just never get to do any sports just because they get so awful once they get up there. Um, so as long as we're they're not allowed to pass, basically, they're just, they're never allowed to pass. That's yeah. right. And also having Gimli as one of the coaches, I mean, he's always going to say, let's go to the mines, right? Yes. He's always going to be throwing, you know, various kinds of dwarfs stuff on you. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things that's really kind of exciting uh, is that I think for, it's been almost 30 years since the famous Cool Runnings um, Jamaican bobsled, bobsled team has competed. They're back. They qualified. But now they have, according to you anyway, they have kind of competition in terms of sort of anomalous first time in the sport, uh, you know, unlikely chance to succeed, but the dream keeps beating in their hearts. And that would be the Australian curling team. Yes, indeed. It's This is massive. And I'm actually really surprised how much curling has taken Australia by storm in the last week. And I think a lot of it comes down to the mixed doubles took place a lot of it before the opening ceremony. So we got a lot of coverage, but yeah, Dean Hewitt and Tyler Gill, a mixed doubles team qualified uh, just at the end of last year. Our first ever time we've had a, a curling team compete in the Olympics, at least with curling as a full sport. Dean's dad actually competed for Australia back in Alberville uh, when curling was a demonstration sport, but obviously we know the technicalities around that, but they, they just took Australia by storm um, and just even, everything around them playing. Uh, there was drama beforehand. There was drama sort of on the last day. Uh, it, it really has been a crazy ride for them. But 
they got two wins on their on their final day when they shouldn't have even been playing, or at least we thought they weren't playing uh, because obviously Tali tested positive for COVID and then they were sent home and then within minutes of them posting a statement saying, oh, we're so sad that we can't play our last two games. They're like, no, get out there and play. And then we ended up knocking off the uh, reigning silver medalists and reigning gold medalists. Australia beat Canada in curling, which sadly got very much overshadowed by Australia winning two medals for the first time in one day in a Winter Olympics. So uh, this should be a much bigger deal because it'd be like Canada beating Australia in cricket. So, uh, yeah, it was it's amazing. And I, I even went last night and did a come and try curling day. I'd never curled in my life. And I have the absolute utmost respect for them and any curlers because for anybody who sits on that couch and goes, eh, I could do that. No, you couldn't. It's hard. So um, great job for them to be able to do that. And I really hope that curling continues to gain a bit of traction in Australia. And this won't be our last ever appearance in the Olympics. Um, the one thing about the Winter Olympics, I always sort of say the, the people in the Winter Olympics, they either don't have mothers or they have negligent mothers because no mother <laughs> would let you play a sport where you put on skis and then go backwards down a slope until you mm-hmm. hit a jump and spin up in the air and then try to grab one of, of the skis with your hand while you're in the air before landing down on the slope. And also, your mother would never let you go figure skating in one of those outfits. You put on something much more. It covers up more, young lady. Um, but, I mean, in, in, in seriousness, the Winter Olympics are just, like, way more dangerous than the Summer Olympics. And these are sports where you can get killed, and there's certainly just a lot of fear. Uh, I mean, the athletes will talk frankly about this, that, yeah, there, there are a lot of times when they're afraid. I don't know what you're talking about. First of all, Colin, I'm sitting here in my figure skating outfit. I thought there was a dress code for this interview, so that's obviously a little bit awkward. Um, I have the yeah, Zoom, Zoom cameras turned off. I can't see you. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, you know, we can we can do that afterwards. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's crazy. I think I did hear a comment recently that curling literally is the only Winter Olympic sport that can't kill you. So <laughs> it's it is insane. I mean, it's personally why I love the Winter Olympics on many levels, and I think that. You know, of the 15 sports, there there really isn't a sport that isn't entertaining at the Winter Olympics where, no disrespect to the Summer Olympics, there's probably a handful of sports you could easily take out and no one's going to miss them. So, and I think coming from a country like Australia where, again, we don't see a lot of these sports, the majority of athletes competing for Australia right now, nobody knows who they are until the Olympics comes around. And then we realize these these crazy things that they're doing, like you're saying, going backwards on skis and and flipping over and just and they make it look so effortless. It looks like they're just not even breaking a sweat. Like this is something we could all do. Talk about curling looking easy. I mean, gosh, the amount of times I've watched the aerials and gone, yeah, I could do that. And <laughs> then realize that I can't even ski. So um it's it's incredible. I think there's some of the most amazing athletes in the world across all the sports. It really is amazing and just and visually spectacular. Always visually spectacular to watch. Watching the downhill yesterday, just um, the speeds and just everything they get, and it's just second nature to them. It's absolutely insane, but incredibly entertaining for us uh, normal people who uh, <laughs> don't have these athletic uh, abilities to be able to do some of the things they do. Right. I mean. Watching the slope style or any of the jumps and sort of saying, I can do that. It's sort of like saying that you could fly a jumbo jet based only on the time that the plane is in the air. It's the takeoff right. and the landing that's the tricky part uh, in, in, in all of these things. Um, I just want to say, because this might not be that high on your uh, radar, but I'm sitting here in Connecticut. Nathan Chen, probably the hottest uh, figure skater in the world, uh, is a student at Yale University, just a few miles south of where I'm sitting. And, and another thing you may not know about, because you're not probably, are you, you're not watching the NBC coverage, right? You're watching your own stuff? 
No, we we have uh, Channel Seven here in Australia do it, but we do we every now and then we'll get say uh, you know a highlight from something that happens. And, and Nathan Chen has been a bit of news here in Australia in terms of just uh, what he could potentially achieve. So we do we, we do actually get a bit of figure skating coverage, and generally a lot of that will focus on say the American team because while we have a couple of competitors, we're ultimately not going to be a medal contention. So they do often focus on say the USA when it comes to that sort of side of things. Right. I was just going to mention that NBC has this. Guy- who does sort of the the data stuff, the quant stuff uh, with politics and, and other kinds of hard news. His name is Steve Kornacki, and he has these pants that people find both exciting and comforting. And now they're using him in completely spurious ways for the Olympics coverage. But if you're feeling nervous wow. about things, if you're an American, the sight of Steve Kornacki's pants uh, will, in fact, uh, you know, calm you down um, quite a bit here. We should just say on a kind of serious note, um, the COVID thing, well, with your curling team, I can just tell you because I do a lot of reporting on COVID. The problem was the PCR test, uh, which they shouldn't be using. They should be using a different kind of test. Uh, they, the cycle threshold's too high. It'll pick up an infection that somebody had in December, uh, which I think is what happened with your curling people. But I mean, it's a, you know, COVID, which was a problem two years ago, is a real problem now. Uh, I, I believe uh, Vincent Zhu, the uh, U.S. figure skater, or Zhao perhaps, the U- U.S. figure skating hopeful who had missed part of it already, has now announced he won't be competing at all. I mean, once again, we're going to have athletes who don't get to do what they do. Yeah, and I mean, it's the world we live in. We know this. Uh, I believe we talked a bit about this in Tokyo, and obviously six months later, it's kind of here we are now. But I think what was particularly scary for, for Tali was that when she landed in Beijing, she initially did test positive as well and then had to go into isolation and do some more tests. So there was very much a, a real chance that they weren't even able to compete. So in some weird way, at, at the point that she nearly, her and Dean nearly got pulled, at that point they had won a game. Uh, they had two games left and ultimately were not going to progress to the medal round. So it obviously would have been a sad end to their campaign, but at least they would have gotten to compete unlike the other way around. But, um, I mean, we saw it yesterday as well in the in the women's ice hockey with the Canada-Russia match, of course, uh, essentially with uh, Canada refusing to take the ice until uh, Russia proved that the rest of their players didn't have COVID and then they played the uh, the match in masks, uh, face masks, which, uh, you know, just listening to your chat you just had on there before, I'm thinking I hope they did their research on those. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, it really is. But, uh, I mean, that looks like they're managing it the best they can and, and maybe it hasn't been quite as affected as some of the athletes from Tokyo, but uh, yeah, it's obviously still being affected to a, to a degree. Well, Ben Waterworth, I believe the next Olympics are like in seven weeks or so. So I'll be talking to you soon. Uh, and uh, Ben's an Australian journalist and radio host and host of many podcasts, including our favorite off the podium, a podcast about the Olympics. Thanks to Lily Tyson for doing such a great job uh, and to Kat Pastor for making it all happen and to you for listening. 